0: Father, you are great. You are great. And through you, we can be what you called us to be. Bless this time, God. Encourage us, convict our hearts, be with us, and be glorified in this time, and be worship and sing, praise, and speak your greatness. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Ah, what a wonderful morning. It's good to have you all here. And uh, it is of the greatness of God by which we are here. And I do pray that this year, I'm actually very excited, I've been talking a lot with Jose, uh, he sends his regards, uh, as many of you may know, Jose, one of our deacons has a big heart for evangelism, and we are, I don't want to say plotting. The plotting sense is a, is a bad word, but uh, it, it's appropriate, we're plotting uh, some ways of some very intentional, even COVID, evangelism for this year, so stay tuned, if you really want to know, love Jose, I'm sure he would just love to talk about it, but... Uh, it is of the greatness of God by which we're here. It's by the greatness of God by which we should be aware of our story, the fact that all of us have stories of our lives, different stories of our lives, but in Christ we all have the same life story. It's of the greatness of God by which we should be showing who He is, not just in word, but by action and thought and feeling and step. Everything. Our lives after reflect the very greatness of God by which we sing in Scripture proclaims. And it is of the greatness of God that very appropriately we turn to this morning as we will be in chapter 5 as Judah, very able read earlier. Thank you, Josh and Judah, Judah, for blessing us with that video. I have to admit, as we come into chapter 5 and we begin with, obviously, some of the very well, most well-known texts, arguably, in Scripture, I have to admit that I'm uh, I'm not very smart. Thank you, thank you for no Amen's. for that you all had your chance. You're all wonderful people. Thank you. Just that doesn't count as you. When looking at the sermon schedule for this year as we're going through Matthew and want to get through it in a year, obviously we are coming at it from a particular angle. We're coming at it from King Jesus and looking at who we are in King Jesus and what that means for us in Christ. Now, that means we have to take bigger chunks of Scripture sometimes. Um, and like the not very short person I am, I chose to preach 20 verses out of some of the most dense, packed, Scripture that even every verse of this text has whole commentaries written on it. Having said that, we're going to cover twenty verses today, so strap that in and hold on, and we'll see if I say anything worthwhile. It is some of the best and most well known verses because obviously, as you had read, the Sermon on the Mount was one of the most talked about, one of the most read, and the most researched, and one of the most written about sermons in history. And there's a reason for it. It's because, not just of who says it, but it's because of the nature of it. You see, you start a sermon... And there's an introduction, and you learn how to go about it. You learn form an organization. And one of the things that you learn, actually, in school is not to lose your audience right away. Generally, you hope to say something that keeps people attention. You hope to have better transition. You hope to have maybe start with a joke or a comment. Or Jesus doesn't start that way. Jesus begins his sermon, which arguably is the sermon of the kingdom, not just the mount with something which is incredibly not just profound and not just dense, but actually radical. We may not think that because we're so used to the Beatitudes. These are things that we memorize as young kids, as we should, as a matter of fact. These are things that we read about and we aspire to, and we don't look at just how incredibly, ridiculously radical these things are because we're not looking at it Jesus' time, or as a Pharisee or a Sadducee. It's interesting, Jesus actually begins his sermon back in 4.23, and actually the Sermon on the Mount, textually, I'm not going to elaborate on this, actually goes until chapter 10, when you see the same bookmark of Matthew saying that, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. There's actually a bookmark all the way in chapter 10 that textually Matthew closes it off before it begins uh, with the next narrative. We're not going to preach all that uh, ugh, today. We will get to it though. But that's the context which we find ourselves starting. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. 4.23 That's Jesus in a nutshell. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics and he healed them and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan, seeing the crowds. He went up on the mountain and when he sat down his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying and it was already read but I'm going to read it again. Blessed are the poor in spirit." Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall seek God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In order to understand what Jesus is talking about and not only why it's so radical, but what he's truly talking about, we have to take a step back and remind ourselves who is doing the teaching. One of the things that we're looking at this year is the fact that we are not just calling Jesus Lord or Messiah, although he is and he is, but we are making a very intentional push to call him King Jesus. Why? Because he is king of this kingdom. And one of the things that we have to keep in mind that when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, probably more than almost any other text, maybe arguably the crucifixion and resurrection, but when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, we have to keep in mind this principle. I've preached about it over a year ago. I've brought it up several times since. I'm going to bring it up again. We have to keep in mind this extremely important principle. The character of the king determines the character of the kingdom and its citizens. If Jesus is our king, his character, His character alone, not just his words, not just his teaching, but his character. And what comes from his character determines the character of his kingdom and therefore determines the character of us as citizens. This is extremely important because not only does it determine how we approach the Beatitudes, but it also determines and teaches us how we act as kingdom people, not just following the words of the king, but following the character of the king. The old adage is so the leaders go so do those they lead for better or worse. We see that in history with the kings of Israel and Judah. They go off in idolatry and all sorts of things that people follow. It's true then it's true today how the king and leader leads the character of the king determines the character of the kingdom and its citizens. This will be something I will bring up over and over through our study on the Mount over the next couple weeks. So, if that's true and we've got that How do we approach the Beatitudes? What are these? Well, there's a couple things we can look at. Oftentimes, they're approached by being virtues, by being things to aspire to by being moral virtues of things that we have to learn and grow in and we can can practice and do. We need to aspire to practice and, and be poor in spirit. Today, we need to practice being meek. We need to practice being thirsty and hungry for righteousness. We need to practice being merciful. And while there is an element of truth in that, it's not complete. Why? Because of the nature of two other things. It's awful hard to get up in the morning and practice mourning unless you have reason and if you have reason you don't wish for it also it doesn't apply in the last two shall we practice persecution for righteousness sake or practice being persecuted for righteousness sake who wants to volunteer for that and I'm not talking about the persecution narratives that we invent I'm talking about actually being persecuted for being Christians and followers of Jesus specifically Any volunteers do the persecuting or be persecuted? I'll keep that in mind. (laughs) I don't know what I mean by that, but I'll keep that in mind. The thing is, my whole point is that while there's an element of truth that these are virtues to work and aspire to, it's not the whole picture, and it breaks down and doesn't apply to all of them. So, therefore, the answer is not quite there. How else do we approach these? Well, it's been thought of that these are like a chain link. In fact, the one leads to the other, leads to the other, leads to the other, and they eventually result in action. They eventually result in tangible activism, as one scholar said. Activism not so much in the political sense, maybe, but they lead to something. If you uh, can attain or somehow... Uh, get a hold of being poor spirit, it will lead somewhere and do something. If you somehow, when you mourn, it will lead somewhere and do something. It's the chain link thing that one link le- leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. There's actually several big theological problems with that. But, the least of which, but one I'm going to focus on now, is that it still doesn't answer what they are, how to approach them, and it still has the same problem with mourning and persecution. It doesn't apply to all of them. Well, others say these are just simply ethical principles in order to aspire to. There's an element of truth in that. But the same objections apply. And if they are only ethical principles to aspire to, and Jesus was only an ethical teacher that we follow His words, we're missing out on the fuller picture of the kingdom. What are the Beatitudes? why do they matter we actually can help answer this by looking at the Lucan version of the uh, Beatitudes found in Luke chapter 6 and they're up here on the screen He says, looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now and you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and they exclude you and insult you and reject you as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. One thing I don't have emphasized up here is that we actually have to work with the term blessed or blessed appropriately. In some translations it translated happy. Now, I'm not a Bible scholar, but that's a bad translation. Better translated is one scholar in his work. He says, Good news is it for those who are poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Good news is it for those who hunger now, you will be satisfied. Good news is it for those who weep, you will laugh. Good news is it for those who are here. And that one works especially because Luke does something Matthew doesn't do. Luke adds... Jesus' contrast to the Beatitudes. Did you know these were here? But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your, your comfort. But woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will more weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Hmm. We see with the Lucan version what the Beatitudes are. The Beatitudes are not simply moral principles or ethical values or virtues to aspire to or things to work on. But they are a picture. They are a picture, a portrait, a sketch of who Jesus says are kingdom citizens versus those who are not. Jesus says this Good news is it for those who are poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom, meaning you are kingdom citizens, but you who are rich, you've already received your comfort, and that's not the kingdom. Blessed are you who are hungry. Good news is it for you who are hungry, for you will be satisfied in the kingdom by my flesh and my blood and my faith. This is not in the Scriptures, but this is the big picture of Scripture. But woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry, because your priority for where sustenance and growth and food and water is, is not in me. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh with the comfort that only I and God can provide. But those who laugh now, you will mourn and weep because where you place your hope, there is no comfort. Rejoice when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of me, because those who you are spoken well of now, because you try to make yourself well off and reject things that stir up the pot and reject things that might hurt people against you, your priorities are obvious and whether the false prophets were. You see the contrast here. Jesus is saying, here is a picture of who is a kingdom citizen and who is not. This is a picture of who has chosen and wants to be, strives to be in the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom under me, Jesus says, versus who is not, who has their own kingdom or who may be comfortable elsewhere. This is a very different take on it than how we generally apply it. And I'll come back around to why this matters in just a minute. But first of all, let's take these for one at a time just real quick. In essence, he is saying, as I said, they're at the gate. And the Beatitudes are the picture of those who have entered into the kingdom versus those who are seeking whatever they seek outside of the gate. Why does that matter? Well, blessed are the poor in spirit. For well, is the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that you're literally poor or in poverty. But it means humility. It means that you think not more of yourself than you ought. It means that you are aware that you, you on your own, have nothing to offer God and nothing to offer yourself that is eternal. You are aware of your situation and you come to God as the sinner did, as opposed to the Pharisee. Have mercy upon me, O God, A sinner. Poor in spirit means that you are well aware of who God is and who you are not as well as who you are as well as who God is. Poor in spirit, recognizing that you are utterly, completely and totally dependent upon God. Period. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Unfortunately, we've had a bit of this in our congregation lately. And there are people who mourn, actually, recently as well. This is self-explanatory. Blessed are those who mourn, though, he says. He says, good news is it for those who mourn, because unlike everything else in the world, which is temporary, unlike any other platitude or any other thought that anyone temporary can offer you that won't go anywhere, this is 2 Corinthians 1, guys, in God, in Christ, is the ultimate comfort, because in Christ, only in God, only in Christ... Is there true peace and true comfort, true rest and true justice, true righteousness? Only those who mourn in the kingdom can be truly, eternally comforted with a comfort that persists and prevails over the evils of this world. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The popular image, which I put up here, as we know, many of us know, is the image of meek does not mean weak, but meek means strength under power. Self-controlled, if you want to bring in some of the fruit of the Spirit, as it were. Self-controlled, being able to know when and how to exert yourself in whatever way you do it. And Jesus is saying, blessed are those who know and under whom to exert what they are and who they are and have their power for they will inherit the earth. Not the people who think that by exerting their power over man the way that everyone's done it through history. Not the kingdoms of the world who says we will conquer you and that is true power. Jesus turns the power paradigm upside down and inside out saying those who serve and those who control themselves, yea, will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. We have to understand what righteousness is. Diekas, yek I had the Greek until I had to say it. Righteousness It's just in Greek. I had it until I had to say it. And then it's just not coming. Une. There we go. That's a hard thing to say when you're under pressure. Une. There we go. Diakosune. It's like toy boat five times fast. Toy boat, toy boat. toy boat. une. You're going to be doing that all day now. I just ruined the sermon. Come back. Righteousness. In the New Testament, Jew is based on the Old Testament from righteousness, which is tzedekah. I know how to say that one. Righteousness is actually not about simply and only how well the performance is, but righteousness is actually based on right relationship. We even have a word for it today in English. If, you're, if someone doesn't do well by someone, we call them a crook because they're crooked. The relationship has gone crooked between them and someone else. And for sinners, the relationship has gone crooked between them and God. But righteousness is restoring a right relationship between us and God. And you can see how hungering and thirst for righteousness, right relationship, hungering and thirsting, sustaining ourselves, thirsting as we need food and water, drink and and protein and such, hungering for a right relationship and everything that entails, how that will fill you when you are aware of Christ's assurance through His grace and mercy of what He has done for that. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for that. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Live as Christ lived. Give as Christ gave. Take up your cross as Christ did. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. There's a verse in Titus which says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled, all things are defiled. Only to someone who is pure in heart seeking after that which is godly who can truly see God everywhere and in everything. Not in the terms of that everything is God but that through which everything worships and glorifies God. Creation itself. Relationships. One thing I could talk about for a while that makes perfect sense of this is our perversion of what is to be reserved between husband and wife in the marriage bed to the pure the wonderful thing in which God is intrinsic and a part of, in the midst of, God created. But to the defiled, it is only that. To the pure in heart, those seeking purity and seeking the truth, they will find God. And the inverse is to those who only seek perversion, they will find it. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Notice that it doesn't say peacekeepers. Those who will keep the peace. This is the image of Jesus inserting himself into the conflict between man and sin to make peace between man and God. Blessed are those who consciously, intentionally, and purposely make peace between themselves and God and between each other, for they will be called children of God. And finally, blessed are those who are persecuted because of their right relationship, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Jesus says, Those who suffer exclusively and particularly specifically because of me, your reward will be there. Once again, not the persecution narratives we invent, but when we are targeted specifically because of our Christian faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the God of the Bible. Blessed are we. Why does this matter? First and foremost, this is a portrait of the Messiah himself. This is a portrait of King Jesus himself. Only someone who is meek, self controlled, but knowing his power, knowing his destiny, knowing who he is, could have gone to the cross. Only someone who knew his place, submitting to the Lord submitting to God could go to the cross. Only someone who could be reviled and persecuted for His Father's name could go to the cross. Only those, only someone who knew ultimately how He could be comforted in the midst of His mourning and strife could have gone to the cross. First and foremost, the Beatitudes are a portrait of King Jesus Himself. They're not moral and ethical virtues to attain but they are characteristics of a life lived right next to God who by virtue of that relationship instituted his kingdom for others to come into only someone who fit the profile of the Beatitudes could have gone to the cross to institute this kingdom but going back to our principle earlier if that is true then these are all portraits Of the kingdom citizen. I've used the illustration before from a scholar that we are meant to be angled mirrors, reflecting God, reflecting His characteristics, reflecting His glory into the world, reflecting His blessings back up to Him. How do we do that? By being poor in spirit, by being meek, by being someone comfortable with mourning, with persecution, by being humble, by being merciful, by seeking purity. Not simply as things to attain, but qualities to live. You see the difference. These are not just things to work on. Oh, I need to be more pure in heart. I need to be more merciful. You probably do and you probably do. I do. What's the difference between working on something versus making something a lifestyle? Everything. Like worship worship is not just something we come and do but worship is a life orientation of praises to our Father and finally and this is arguably what comes all together how this comes all together you realize that it is only by someone who fits the portrait of the Beatitudes by which the gospel and the kingdom is possible You see, if someone is not poor in spirit and thinks more of themselves than they ought, they'll be tempted by worldly powers and being tempted by the way that power is done all through the history of the world. Only by being poor in spirit can we serve and be glorified, as Jesus says. Only by being meek, not exerting our power over those and consequently, but by being meek and self-controlled can we follow Jesus' footsteps. By being merciful as opposed to judgmental. By not ignoring the mourning and hurting of this world by embracing it knowing that there is ultimate comfort in God by peacemaking not just keeping peace and avoiding conflict by stepping purposely into it to make peace between us and God in every situation thereby the kingdom becomes real not someone who simply avoids it or, or plows over other people saying whatever someone who goes and does the uncomfortable thing emptying himself as Jesus did of pride in making peace with one another only by a person of this type, only by a kingdom of this type, is the kingdom possible. He goes on, however, and these are connected. There's a paragraph division there, which is unfortunate because oftentimes we tend to stop in convenient spots in our Bible. This is all connected. You are salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and give light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, what's interesting about this is that much is made of details. And here's the thing. I study the Bible for my life. I will love to get into the details of if this how salt works, how light works, is this preservation, is this flavor. But the thing is so often we get wrapped up in details which, one, actually are not what Jesus is talking about, and two, move us from the meaning of the text. Do you notice that the salt that he's talking about, he's not talking about the effect. He's not talking about whether it's your flavoring and preserving. He's talking about and says, You who are in the kingdom, you are salt. You already are. By nature, being in the kingdom, you are salt. Do you see that? By being in the kingdom, you are light. not something to, to look about the effect or how to do it. You are. You are salt. You are light. And especially out of the Beatitudes, if it's a portrait of the kingdom person, what he's talking about here is not so much the effect or how to become, but what Jesus is talking about here is the warning of losing that which we already have to be influencers for those around us. What does he say about salt? If it loses its saltiness, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled. He's talking about Christians. About you and me who do things, act in certain ways in which we lose influence with those around us and lose influence from those in the world so that way no matter what our effect is, it's gone. And all we have left is to be thrown out. I'm talking about the fact that you are light. So you don't purposely put yourself underneath a basket. But you are Put up on a stand for all to see. Therefore let it shine, and don't do anything which dims it or takes it away. This isn't the details of what kind of effect we have. As fun as those are to get into, that's not the point. It's a warning to maintain the influence we ought to have. The question we have to ask ourselves is what might we do by which we lose our influence over those either we lead, those in ministry those around us in our community? Those who view Christianity already maybe unfavorably or uncertain? What do we do that loses influence? Instead, nothing which you already know will disappear. In fact, the word fulfill doesn't mean to abolish. The word fulfill actually means to make full. So he says, everything you know will be true therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom that's serious business but everyone who practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven and we're on board so far until he gets to the last verse here he says for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven and that's where we go wait a minute the Pharisees are perfect by definition they keep the law there's a word here which is not translated it actually means greatly surpasses not just surpasses but that's actually a connotation in the word we mean greater than or surpasses It means more than even more so and so jesus command gets even more in your face what's he mean here especially in the context when was looking at the nature of of what he's talking about. As one scholar says, he's not talking about the do-better gospel. And he's not talking about the be-better gospel or try-harder gospel. But he is talking about the more gospel. What do I mean by that? Not do more, not be more, not try more. But the more which only Jesus as King can make you and make you strive towards. What do I mean by that? The fact is that Jesus wants more for us than simply obeying a law. He wants more for us than simply checking the boxes and saying, yes, I did that. Here's my reward. He wants us to live as He lived. Pick up His cross as He picked up His cross. Not just simply do this or do that, but become like Him. That's a more gospel. Jesus not only wants more, but He expects more more from us. He doesn't expect us as in, oh, you didn't try hard enough, do better. But He expects that we live and more become like Him every day through the Spirit, through God, through Bible reading, through prayer. He expects us to not only pick and choose or take bits of His gospel, but truly want to embrace the most of it, most of it that we can to be more like Jesus every day. That's the more gospel. And finally, Jesus... Creates the more gospel in us you see the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount are not just about things which we do or hope to do or maybe attain but they're about becoming more like Christ by being like Christ by living as Christ taught and lived and died there's a huge difference there as I said The Beatitudes and actually the whole Sermon on the Mount is what Jesus is, what a kingdom citizen is, and is actually the whole... Only a person who reflects the Beatitude, reflects who Jesus is, can not only be a citizen in the kingdom, but can also be one that progresses the kingdom. Only one who reflects a life of how Jesus lived. It's not about trying harder or less harder or doing more or doing less. There's elements of truth in that. But it's about embracing the people that in Christ we were always meant to be and living out in our character the character of our King. For the next couple of weeks we'll be exploring this more in the Sermon on the Mount. But let me ask you this. In closing... Not, which of the Beatitudes do you need to try harder in? Not, which of the Beatitudes do you need more of? Let me ask you. Is your life reflective of the Beatitudes? Not just one, not just one, but reflective of the whole. Are you, as Jesus, If you want to be, as we talked about in class this morning, wherever you are, he says, we'll start there. Only through Jesus can there be hope in mourning. Only through Jesus can the poor in spirit become rulers and conquerors in Christ. Only through Jesus can we make true peace. If you don't know what that means, talk to one of us, talk to Casey, talk to me, talk to Josh, the person sitting next to you, We'll lead you in that journey, but for the rest of us, may we stop trying to be, harder to be like Jesus, and may we start today living a whole life and character in the character of the King.